Okay, so any questions on the or issues with the questions from last week that you answered from chapter 5? These were pretty straightforward, but I can see where you may have needed to write more than you have in the past. So, um, yeah. But that made up for last week. You only had three last week, right? Okay, so, but it was pretty straightforward, I think, especially after the the PowerPoint lesson and all. Okay, um, the fifth one, why do we need inferences and why are they tricky? I'm, I'm anxious to see what you wrote in that regard. Um, anybody want to offer your answer? Why are why are inferences tricky? Don't everybody speak up at once. Well, Hudson can't because his jaws are full of brownie there. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll read. I'll read the answer. When, when you turned it in. Okay, so let me, uh, let me recap and expand a little bit on what we did last week. Okay, uh, we're going to resurrect our old friend Socrates. Okay, so uh, all men are mortal. Socrates come back to life. So Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Now, this is a valid argument. And remember I mentioned the antecedent and the consequent. So all men is the antecedent and our mortal is the consequent. So the second premise affirms the antecedent. Does that make sense? All right. And that makes it a valid argument. Now, let's look at a different one. Premise one, all stars are burning masses of hydrogen. Premise two, C2021A1 is not a burning mass of hydrogen. Therefore, C2021A1 is not a star. Now, what's this one doing? This one is denying the consequent. Okay, all stars, that's the antecedent. Burning masses of hydrogen is the consequent so, C2021A1 is not a star. Okay? Does that make sense? It denies the consequence. So, therefore, it's valid. All right, let's, uh, let's mix things up a little bit. <clears throat> hey, can, you, can you go back to that one? I'm sorry. You are. So, <clears throat> so for it not to be... Alright, so. I have to get, when I go back one, it has to yeah. do the whole screen. Okay. So the antecedent, in the, fir- in the first one, in all men are mortal, sorry, mm-hmm. is man, the antecedent is confirmed by the pr- second premise, right? Correct. On so the, then, in the first example. In the first example, right. In the second, you're saying it's denied, like the consequent is denied. Mm-hmm. So if all star, I'm just trying to think through this. So if all stars are burning masses of hydrogen. It doesn't make sense to me, but I like as to why the antecedent consequent, but it makes sense if you just read it. 
it since all stars have to be burning masses of hydrogen and it's not, then it could be a star. Yeah, the first one is saying that it's the second one is Socrates is a man. In the second illustration, it is not a burning mass all right. of hydrogen. So it is denying the consequence. That, C2021. Okay. The not is the key term there, right? That's correct. Now, what we're going to do, the screen I went to a little too quickly, I'm going to show you, we're going to turn it around, and then we'll analyze it a little bit, okay? This is why they're tricky. And these are elementary ones. <laughs> Wait till you get into first order predicate logic. I think what's confusing is why does the first one affirm the antecedent and the second one denies the consequence? Shouldn't deny the antecedent? Well, it's a, in other words, you would say C1 is not a star. And then what would you put for a conclusion? It's not a burning mass of hydrogen. Would that be valid? I think so. Yeah. It would be the same as the first one, right? Okay. Let's move on here. Okay. Let's go. We did this one once before, but I'm re reviewing it again. Okay, so now we're going to change things around. Premise one, all men are mortal. That hasn't changed. That's true. Socrates is mortal. Okay, that's, we'll take that as true. And the conclusion, therefore, Socrates is a man. Okay, so what did we, what did, what did this one do? It affirmed the consequence. Yeah. Not the condition or the antecedent. That's right. Okay, so it's not valid. And why isn't it valid? Just think about this. Can you conclude that Socrates is a man because of the two premises? No. He could be a man, but he could be a dog. could be any living thing, right? Okay, so the argument is invalid. Okay, let's go back to our burning mass of hydrogen here. Okay, same premise. One. But then we say premise two, uh, C2021 is not a star. So do we therefore conclude that C2021 is not a burning mass of hydrogen? No. Okay, it becomes clear, right? Because it could be a burning mass of hydrogen, just not a star. It could be, you know... Uh, an industrial plant that's on fire, <laughs> you know, but it isn't. I think I put, I think I put in your, in your notes that actually C2021 is a comet. It's the, it was the Christmas comet of last year, in fact. Okay. And comets are not burning masses of hydrogen. They're dirty snowballs. And to put it in the vernacular. Okay. Does that make sense? This is why they're tricky though. And you have to practice do some practice with some of these. Now, what's what's important about this that that I, I really think you you want to know, and that's if an argument is shown to be invalid, the conclusion is not necessarily false. Don't make that mistake, okay? Because all that's been demonstrated with it is that it's just simply a bad argument. So. Maybe somebody 
will realize, oh, I made a bad argument, and they'll straighten it out and arrange it properly, or they'll give it the right, um, you know, the right uh, uh, groundedness that it needs. But if that's all we have, then is a bad argument, then we can't take it either way that it's true or false, and we just have to wait until uh, to see if there's a, a valid argument that that comes one way or the other um, that either affirms it or denies the conclusion. Okay? So, that's important. Alright, so the chapter that's coming up now is on perception. And this one is really interesting. So we have, it's interesting, one thing that are we in chapter 6 or chapter 9? <laughs> just a coincidence, folks. Just a coincidence. All right, so what what do we perceive? Well, there are two general types of perception. These are in your book. And this, this is probably intuitive. We have physical perceptions. These are the five senses that we have. We perceive things through our five senses. And then we perceive things mentally. Um, it could be somebody's having a mental perception right now, sitting in a boring class on epistemology, and they're thinking about uh, what kind of a snack they're going to have before they go to bed tonight. And maybe, and maybe there's a sensory perception about some real tasty brownies over there that's triggering that. Hudson. <laughs> All right. So, to and I'm going to put this up a couple of times. Um, so when you get a quiz next week, you don't get it mixed up. There are two general types of perceptions, physical and mental. Okay? But there are two general theories of perception, although the book kind of explains them as three, and I'll show you in a minute why I... Say it's probably easy to remember if you, if we go with two, because under realism there are two subcategories that that the um, the authors regard as um, as independent theories of perception. So when you read the book, you'll see there's direct realism, indirect realism, and then anti-realism. But I thought it would be easier if you uh, saw this graphic. Because direct realism and indirect realism are both uh, realistic types of perception. And we'll see the difference here in a second. Okay, so <clears throat> in the chapter there are some important questions that uh, we, need to, we need to consider. What kinds of perceptions uh, can we have? So, and what is a perception? And how well do our perceptions give us an accurate depiction of the way things are? The way the world really is. Okay, I'm repeating here again two general categories. Mental, this is an idea. It's, it's in your mind, but it's not necessarily detected by your immediate senses. And then there's the physical category. And we already said that's Touch, taste, smell, hearing, and vision. Okay? Now, 
theories of perception. Remember, two categories, realism and anti-realism, and I'm going to do it my way. Hopefully it won't confuse you. It doesn't seem that confusing, but I think it's easier to kind of keep it in your head. Okay, so direct realism, uh, <clears throat> what does it tell us? Well, it's a, it's a realist theory. And it, it holds that, that these objects continue to exist outside the perceiver's mind, even while being unperceived. And you think, well, why wouldn't they be? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you heard the, the uh, it's, it's kind of a cliche, I guess, when a tree falls in the forest, uh, does it does it make noise if there's no one there to hear it? How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, okay. Well, this one probably Pastor Drew and Brother Curtis can relate to. There's a there's a corollary to this. When a man speaks in the when the man speaks in the forest and there's no woman to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> Yeah, sorry guys, this is what you got to look forward to. <laughs> All right. Let's move on here. Uh, All right, we got a little squeak out of Amanda back there. That's good. All right. Huh? She's unhappy. Causal theory. And this is our perceptions are caused by events or objects outside of our minds. So all this is under direct realism. And then naive realism is really direct realism on steroids, you might say. It's applying uh, this direct realism to the extent that um, it's the only way we can, we can actually have an exact idea of the way things are. All right. I think there are three blanks to fill in there. Is that right? Okay. Just let me know if I go too quickly. All right. Now, again, 1B, this is still under realism, indirect realism. So what does it tell us? This is also known as representationalism. And this idea is that um, the perception that we have formed in the in our in our mind uh, comes from our senses and not the object directly. And this this can be kind of kind of confusing. Uh, <clears throat> we can uh, we can question that whatever we whatever we're perceiving is it is it directly something we're aware of in nature. Or um, is it some some medium through which we detect what's in nature? So it would hold that uh, we are not that we're not directly aware of an object itself. It's got to go through this mental process, and uh, well, there's a chart that's given in your that's given in your book, and I couldn't copy and paste it and make it very clear on the 
on the screen, so I kind of recreated it. So we have objects or events in a real world, and there's energy, the authors call it, and that would be true, I guess, the photons strike the retina of your eye, um, heat sensing through your touch, and sound waves entering your ear, other things, taste buds, smell, all that. Okay, come to the sense organs in your body. And from there, uh, it sends signals to the brain. Well, this is all seems true and scientific. And then the signals in the brain result in a brain event. In some cases, uh, a blank out. <laughs> so there's a transformation in this indirect realism from the physical to the mental. Now, that just made sense to me when I read it. But the authors uh, take some exception to this, as we'll we'll see uh, a little further on. So, this is what is known as the perceptual experience. There's a mechanical input and then a non-mechanical idea. This is on page 69 in your textbook. Figure 6.1. Okay, I'm not going to put that on a, on a quiz. It's kind of it's kind of the way I always thought it worked. Wait, did you just say you're going to put that on the quiz? I'm not going to put it on the quiz, okay? <clears throat> I'm to have you write out the, draw out the chart and put all the details on it. Yeah. Okay. All right, so... We're still looking at categories of perception. Now we're at number two, or the authors list it third, anti-realism, which is sometimes known as phenomenalism because it holds that uh, perception is just a phenomenon of the mind. It's not necessarily connected to the world itself. And so uh, this phenomenalism or anti-realism, it... It really goes, it goes beyond this indirect realism because it emphasizes the role of the mind over the senses. And so it would lead people to question everything that your senses would tell you about the world. And it's associated with this fellow, Immanuel Kant. Now, I guess before we move on here, uh, Well, we'll move on, because I think I can put it in, make this comment a little bit later. So, we have these two general areas and two sub-areas under realism. So, how might we determine which of these theories is the correct one? What would you do if you were going to analyze this, given the tools that we have? Hmm. Well, we could, right, try and formulate a deductive syllogism or induction. What else could we do? We could try to make an inference to the best explanation, right, an abductive type of reasoning. Did those occur anyway? Yeah, okay. (laughs) All right, so um, 
Let's try something here. Let's just divide the two main categories. Because if we do all three of them, we would probably have to go to abduction. All right? Because we would have to choose the uh, inference to the best explanation for the way things are experienced. So let's try a disjunctive form of a deductive syllogism. All right? So premise one, if phenomenalism or anti-realism, same word, is an accurate view of reality, then we should not be able to rely on our senses to live and act in a way that protects us from harm. Kevin's got it. (laughs) Ah, But we are able to rely on our senses to live and act in a way that protects us from harm. And what's our justification for that? Well, I think it's our experience, right? If your car's stalled on a railroad track and you're trying to get it started and not able to get it started and you hear a a train whistle and I feel the car vibrating and you look up and you say, boy, that's a strange hallucination. Hmm. Let me turn the radio up while I'm trying to get this car. No, you're not going to do that unless you're high on something. You can unbuckle that seat belt, throw the door open, and get out of the car as fast as you can, and then turn the thing over to the insurance company. So, yeah, we do rely on our senses uh, in everyday life. So, the conclusion is, therefore, phenomenalism is not an accurate view of reality. Does that work? Denying the consequence, that's a valid argument. Yep. Bingo. All right. Direct realism or indirect realism. Now we have to decide between the two subcategories. So realism is our uh, conclusion for how we view and perceive things. So this is right out of the book. It's hard to see how we can ever be confident that our mental world squares with the external world. In other words, he's pointing at indirect realism here. In other words, if indirect realism is right, how do we know that we know anything about the world itself because we can never have direct access to the external world? No, we have indirect access. Remember the chart, the arrow's going down. But a good point that he makes in the in the uh, textbook is that you touch a hot pan on the stove or touch the surface of the stove, you've got immediate (laughs) direct perception that that's hot. You don't have to spend any time at all deciding that you need to move your hand from the stove. So that, that would be one example in support of direct realism. But he concludes, a little caveat here, in a wide variety of intellectual disciplines such as philosophy, theology, sociology, and science, much attention has been given to develop a methodology that will allow for genuine knowledge of the external will, while also noting the potential for perceptual and cognitive error. Sometimes what we perceive isn't right. Sometimes, even if we're in our right mind, 
we can be deceived by what we see or hear. Can we not? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so what he prescribes here, it, <clears throat> he, they, both authors, is, a, is an approach called critical realism. And so it's kind of a compromise of the two. <clears throat> and uh, you'll read this in the book. So, that's pretty much the conclusion of the chapter. And by George, we've got about 16 minutes left. So I have some bonus stuff here. <clears throat> now, if you've seen, guys or ladies, if, if you've seen this video before, it's only about, it's less than a minute. Um, don't say anything, okay? Just kind of, just watch if, if you've seen it before. Have you seen it before? No, no. Okay. All right. So it's uh, this is in a shooting range, and pay kind of pay attention to the uh, range officer's facial expressions as this uh, fellow goes up to uh, practice his marksmanship. Let's see. Nope. Let me go back one. Wow. There we go. Is that cool? Don't judge too quickly. <laughs> How many of you seen that before? Nobody. Wow. I showed this to the Trail Life Boys a couple of years ago. All right. So, does this video remind you of a particular scripture verse? Can you think of a particular scripture verse, Pastor Drew? Amen. Give the man an extra point. Give him an extra brownie. Pass him the brownies. <laughs> In trail life, we have this little, um, we started with Jolly Ranchers, this little thing I made with a spoon and a, a catapult kind of thing. So now we're launching Reese's Pieces out to the kids. So, spooing. <laughs> All right. So we launch a, a brownie or cupcake or something. All right. So that's it. Very, very good. Yeah, right on. Anybody think of anything else? I thought somebody might say, uh, quoting the Lord, uh, judge not lest you be judged or something like that, right? Okay, yeah. All right, so I thought I'd put in a, some allusions. This uh, this fella, I'm, I'm not an art uh, historian or anything like that, but this fellow Salvador Dali, a Spanish artist, uh, he was into surrealism, and he did a couple of interesting paintings. Um, what do you see? 
What's the first thing you see? Grandma's and grandpa looking creepily at each other. Mariachi. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's two, two, uh. Oh. Yeah. And there's a chalice in between them, right? Yeah. Pretty, pretty ingenious. Okay. Let's, let's look at another one of this. This guy was really weird. Instead of a dog, you know what he had for a pet on a leash? An ant eater. An ant eater. He he'd walk around with an ant eater on a leash. <laughs> All right, let's let's check out another one here. What do you see here? A guy with no body. Yeah. Whoa, that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's laying down there? The dog. The dog. But if you see, but if you see the the large head of the of an old man, bald guy like me, you you might see just yeah. Yeah. a hand or something there, right? But but then you see, then but then you see a fellow with a sombrero and something over his shoulder, a sack or something. And then you see a, a lady with a, like a sash across her skirt there, and holding something, a baby maybe. I don't know. I know, like the lady, like right there. I, yeah. Yeah. So that's All right now. Here's something else. They they do this in photography, and these are not photoshopped. Okay, these are not. I'm going to show you two that a couple that, but they're not photoshopped. But they're really puzzling. Okay, here's the first one. What's going on here? Wearing clothes that match the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kinda. I mean, the first impression I had was that she's her lower part is transparent, is visible, like you see the beach sand through her through her skirt and all down there. But she's just standing really far back from the water. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But they, she's standing just at the right place. Evidently, the the fabric has. White on the top and this color on the bottom that just some, somehow matches the sand on the on the beach. It's not Photoshop, okay. And here's the one I think is really takes you off in a second here. Oh yeah. <laughs> like she's on a levitating carpet there, right? Because the shadow and even the flagpole. You almost get the idea that it's the microphone stand part of it, right? All right. And this was a a quote from the previous chapter, but we're going to read it a little bit different. One way that we can avoid making improper inferences is by taking note of the various ways that our, instead of inferences, we could maybe put perceptions in there too, right? Would it not be... Uh, fitting to say that uh, our perceptions can be tainted in a number of different ways. All right, and then the last picture here. You see the world as you are. Oh, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. We are done.
about 10 minutes early. But if you want, and you may not want, I had, um, I had found this video. Let me, whoops, let me turn off our rhinoceros guy there. Okay, this is a, this is a, a young lady who's put this video together and she's done a number of them on YouTube. But I'm, I'm not going to comment right offhand. We're just going to get it started. If it'll, oh, that's what you have to do. Okay. Yeah, okay. Can you hear it? Since then, I've wanted to understand the nature of true reality and share my discoveries with you guys so we can find out together. So in this video, we're going to be taking a closer look at reality. While we were thinking about the best place to start, it occurred to me, are humans even capable of understanding reality? Do we have the right tools? Do we see external reality as it truly is or a fictional story our senses tell us? In the 18th century, the great German philosopher Immanuel Kant argued that we can never have access to the unfiltered thing in itself of objective reality. Plato compared our entire life experience to mere shadows on a crazy wall. Now, a lot of time has passed since Kant and Plato, and a lot of advancements have been made in science. We'll be exploring this question through the lens of modern science. And, quick spoiler alert, the conclusion is rather unsettling. It turns out modern science actually agrees with those old-time philosophers. We don't see reality as it really is, like, at all. Ah. Well? We generally think that our senses are an accurate depiction of the external world, like a window or a camera. Many great philosophers throughout history thought that everything we can know, we know through our senses. Taste, hearing, sight, smell, and touch. So you think that to be successful in the world, as us humans clearly are, it would make the most sense to see the world accurately, that our ancestors who saw reality clearly had a competitive advantage over those who didn't. If you think this is the case, let me show you an image. Look at these two squares. What color are they? One looks brown and one looks orange, right? Well, that's what your eyes are telling you. It's what they're telling me too. Now look at what happens when we black out the rest of the image. The two squares are, in fact, exactly the same color. Because of the way the light was shone, your brain corrected the image to what makes sense in the real world. In other words, your perceptual reality did not match the objective reality. Here's another example that you've probably seen. Back in 2015, a very similar phenomenon took the internet by storm. <laughs> you see this? The simple image of a dress quickly became a viral sensation, so much so that it became known as the dress that broke the internet. We broke the internet. <laughs> if you haven't seen this before, what colors do you think the dress is? Now all the people around you will It's definitely golden white. It's golden white. But to some, there's no purpose. The reason this image has such an effect on people was because it revealed differences in human color perception, something we thought was an objective property about the world. We're used to having conflicting opinions. Like I say, the girls would have seen this before. I never heard of it before. Like our opinions are biased and dependent 
natural makeup. A good example of this is colorblindness. But it's not just our vision that can deceive us, it's all of our senses. Listen to this audio clip. Each time you hear it, try to hear either brainstorm or green needle. I can switch back and forth with yeah. you. Can you? I can only hear yeah. Yeah. I heard brainstorm the first time in Green Needle. I heard Green Needle. I've only heard that. It just sounds like Green Interesting. I can never hear brainstorm because it's two syllables, but I hear three syllables. Yeah. The first green. one sounds it's like brainstorm. Brainstorm. Green Needle. You have to back it up. Green Needle. All right. I'll take your word for it. Green Needle. depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world, we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. It might be helpful to clear up here exactly what we mean by hallucinations. Hallucinations don't always need to be crazy, colourful visions or magical flying beings. The word simply means an experience involving the apparent perception of something not there. So how does this happen? Well, what if I told you that just 10% of the information that we use to see comes from our eyes, and the other 90% is filled in by our brains? An example of this is blind spots. Okay. I'm not sure about the 90% that 10%. That requires an argument, right? It requires evidence, warrant, <coughs> justification. But, okay, we'll listen on. 
Because I like the way she finishes up here. Retina, right at the back of your eye, contains millions of tiny light detectors called rods and cones. This is how it's seen. They cover the entire retina, except for the spot where the optic nerve connects to the brain. This is a blind spot, as there are no photoreceptors, so no light can be detected there. Now your brain fills in these blind spots so you don't notice them. If you don't believe me, just look at this. Cover your right eye and look at the green dot. Slowly move your head towards the picture. picture. You might have to be close up to the screen to make this work, I don't know. And your brain will fill in the space with white. It doesn't look like anything missing. Everything is missing. This is a slightly different example of a social hallucination, of your brain presenting you with something that isn't there. Notice that the two desert things at the bottom are basically the same, just split. Now stare at the dot between the red and green. Don't look anywhere else. As you're staring at that dot, your brain is learning that the left side of its visual field is under green light, and the right side is under red light. That's becoming its new reality. Now when I tell you to, not yet, I want you to look at the dot between the desert things. We need a bit more time for your brain to get used to this new reality. So to stop being awkward, I'll sing a quick song I made up. Red and green in the desert sea, green and red are in your head. Okay, that's enough of that. Now look at the dot between the two desert things. Do they still look the same? Whoa. Uh, uh, no, not uh, the look red. Yeah, green and red. Green. I looked at it the whole time. Yeah, yeah. The left side looks red. The left side looks green. The right side looks green. Yeah. The left side always looks green to me. Okay, but she's trying to she's trying to make a point that um, yeah. But I see that as it's uh, called persistence of vision. And if you didn't have persistence of vision, you're, when you move quickly, things would, uh, you wouldn't see smooth movements in things. So persistence of vision helps, um, helps you retain like the last frame, if you will, of, of the image. And so what you've done is you've just kind of, um, put a time exposure on your retina. That, that persists when you go and look at another object. But that's, well, she's calling that a hallucination by a different term. Okay, so I think it's part of God's good design is what I think it is. <laughs> okay, let's see what she's going to say next here. Then we'll, we'll quit. Hello. We can't is doing this all the time and not just with sight but with all the senses. How much time we get? Hence, if the living creature were removed, all these pollings would be annihilated. So if you're not seeing the raw information that's actually there, what are you seeing? Well, as neuroscientist and well-renowned expert inspector Joe Waters said, what you see is the meaning that was useful to see in the past. You see what we call the empirical significance of information. You see the behavioral value of the data, not the data. In the example of the desert thing, it was useful at one point for our brains to perceive that the left side of its visual field was under green light and the right side was under red light. 
So when we adjusted our gaze, our brain assumed that, hey, if it was useful in the past, it's probably still useful now. Another example of this is the fact that hills appear to look steeper to us if we're wearing a heavy backpack. We are literally seeing the extra effort it's going to take. We see the meaning of the information, not the information itself. This brings us to our next question. Why? Okay. There. She's going to... And there's another fellow that's going to come on there and, and relate this to evolution. I think it's interesting that so many secularists, psychologists, secular philosophers use evolution as the filter to interpret everything. Okay, but given that, um, we're going to quit. She does come around in the last minute or so and give a caveat to everything that she just said about uh, about anti-realism. So I think it was kind of clickbait an argument against realism, uh, because she does give, in the, in her final assessment, she does give a more reasonable uh, view of, of perception. But she pulls some uh, people out, like the last couple, the guy at the TED Talk and this last fella, uh, folks that are probably on the fringe, okay? And, and they're out there, and yeah, you, you'll probably... Meet them and you're witnessing to somebody in the mall or whatever. Okay? So you're aware uh, of what's out there. But, uh, you know, when I saw the video and I watched it, I gave her a thumbs up because she put a lot of effort into it. Did a great job, I think, all the graphics and all. Um, But she's a secularist, evidently, and doesn't know the whole truth yet. So... Let's close in prayer, and we'll let you go. Run a couple minutes over, but I hope that was with your permission. (laughs) Okay, we started. We're always starting late too. Mr. Curtis, would you close in prayer? Would you mind closing in prayer for us, sir? Thank you.